All right, good morning once again. Let's go ahead and jump into God's Word this morning. We are continuing in our teaching series called Law and Prophets. Uh, that time spent with Jesus on that hillside in Matthew that we find in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Uh, this is week number nah, Oh, man. So I always prepare for that part. Week number nine. <laughs> and today's message is called Standoff. Uh, today's another one of those time machine or time capsule messages. I'm taking you back in time. They say time travel is not possible, but au contraire. If you'll climb with me into the Wayback Machine, we're going to go back to the year 2020. Just over one year from ago from today. Remember that wonderful yet at the same time terrible time in American history. Several things were going on in, the, uh, in November of 2020. Uh, there was a pandemic. There had been an election. An election that uh, I'd say went pretty smoothly. <laughs> well, as you recall, at the time of this writing, the presidential election was just last Tuesday. Okay, so if that can place you on the calendar, we're in uh, early to mid-November 2020. The presidential election happened last Tuesday. We still don't know who won the presidential election between Trump and Biden. Are you with me on this? You, you remember that kind of like slightly nauseous feeling? Okay. But what, but what we do know is that the past four years have brought to the surface some of the worst aspects of our society. I don't think anyone from that perspective looked back and said, you know what, things are going pretty well. Um, the past four years have brought to the surface deep, lingering, and sinful wounds, divisions in our country. Regardless of your political persuasion, it is hard to describe the USA as being in a great place. Healthy, robust, each of us living out that good old American dream. You know, uh, no one had the sense that the founding fathers were spiking the football like, yes, the great experiment has worked. <laughs> there is so much visceral angst, so much naked hatred, promoted in the news and on social media, even among good, God-fearing people. Maybe, and here's the worst part, maybe especially among people that would consider themselves good, God-fearing people. It seems to have become somehow, it seems to have become a moral excellence to win arguments at any cost because what happens if we lose an argument? Well, God loses, right? Because He's on our side. If we don't win this argument, uh, God and His truth is at stake. And so we, we, we wage an all-in, you know, all no-holds-barred battle for the truth as we perceive it. And if we lose, God loses, right? We feel that we are in the right when we vilify those who disagree with us. When we dehumanize and when we let ourselves hate those who simply hold a different opinion than ours. Have you felt this uh, going on maybe inside of you? I mean, surely you've seen it happening in front of you. As you see people you know and love that you know really wouldn't probably hurt a kitten, but maybe they would because you're starting to see some stuff boil up, bubble up out of them uh, on their social media feed that you're like, ooh, ooh, gross. 
There's something gross inside this person, and it's coming out. This, 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 this toxic environment has drawn something out of them, too. And so uh, we find people that, are, that consider themselves good, God-fearing people starting to hate others. Now, it's true. Not all opinions are equal. Not all positions on issues are honorable. Not all positions on issues are, are right or true, but it is really never okay to dehumanize someone. It is never really okay to hate another person, is it? I mean, really, that's not territory we can let ourselves wander into and like, oh, my bad, <laughs> accidentally started hating a person. That's not a place we should be. A friend of mine named AJ, he posted during this time something on his social media feed that captured my attention and it really, I thought, just encapsulated that tension uh, that I was feeling, that I was sensing in our, in our community and in our nation at the time. He said this, AJ said, I keep seeing takes that now it's totally okay and even virtuous to hate, to label and dismiss anyone who voted the other way. Hear this. It takes a massive amount of energy to maintain steady, calculated resentment toward a single person, let alone approximately 50% of the population. I think I'll pass. Loving my enemy like Jesus told me to is counterintuitive, but it is so much better for my soul. It is so much better for my soul. So for me, because of Jesus and because of my conscience, I cannot get on board with hating someone else. I cannot get on board with attacking other people for the dumb stuff they believe. Okay, you may call me a libertarian, and in this aspect, I'm a libertarian. I think at the heart of true liberty, of freedom, is the inalienable right to believe dumb things. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Even to do dumb things. This is the heart of liberty. People can do dumb stuff, and you've just at some level got to be okay. You can't hate them for what they think or what they do. You must love. Now, getting back to the issue of the soul, what does normalized prejudice, what does acceptable hatred do to our hearts? What do you think it does to our hearts? How does a steady diet of anger and outrage damage us? There's no neutral ground here. There's something happening to us. If we're feeding daily on anger and hatred, something is happening. Damage is occurring. How does a baptized resentment poison our minds, and how does it ultimately shrink our souls? If, as Jesus identified, hatred is the root of murder, allowing hatred to thrive in our souls, it creates the stench of death. The stench of death, a fragrance of murder, permeates our life and far too often permeates our Christian fellowships. Our churches sometimes have that waft of like, it smells like death here. There's hatred in the room, and hatred is the root of murder. There's murder happening in our hearts because oftentimes, far too often, we're harboring a spirit of hatred. Jesus understood our human capacity to hate entire groups of people. I mean, in some weird, twisted way, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> One single person can hate an entire population of people, and it's pretty easy, actually. It's like falling down a flight of stairs. You can just do it. Without even really trying, you can end up hating entire groups of people, whole categories of people. 
Jesus understood this and he felt it absolutely necessary to confront it, to call it out and to challenge us. He said, at all costs, it is worth it to root this out. It is I'm going to root it out at all costs in your life. If your life is to be hidden in mine, this has no place and it must be dealt with. It must be dealt with. So here's the key point, and Jesus makes it clear. And I want to take a posture here that makes you listen. I'm leaning toward you here. This is Jesus' key point. If you are following Jesus, nothing another person thinks, believes, says, or does gives you permission to hate them. I'm going to say that again. If you are following Jesus, nothing another person thinks, believes, says, or does gives you permission to hate them. Hate has no place among the disciples of Jesus Christ. It's anathema. It has no place here. Far be it from us that this be among us. But, you might be asking, the imaginary interlocutor in the room, but what about the 9-11 hijackers? What about Al-Qaeda? You know, we always have the Hit uh, Hitlers on my list too. What about Hitler? We can hate Hitler, right? What about the, the Nazis? Or the Nazis? People, back in World War II time, people actually said Nazis. It was kind of funny. But Nazis, nothing funny about the Nazis. What about them? Can we hate them? What about those dirty Democrats? What about those nasty Republicans? What about uh, those racists? Oh, what about those anti-racists? I mean, we've sorted the entire human population into categories which have become easy targets for our particular partisan hate. The entire population. So what about our enemies? Who so richly deserve it, Jesus? What about our enemies? But Jesus makes no exceptions. If we are to be children of God, we must not hate. The world will know you are his disciples by your love. He doesn't even let us go to that middle ground. He's like, you know, it'd be easier if he said, the world will you know, know you are my disciples by your not hating. <laughs> no, the needle has to swing to the other side. That, that, like, oh no, this, this side where I actually have to feel goodness toward them. We, they will know we are Jesus' disciples by our love. So... Turn in your Bible to Rome, uh, Matthew chapter 5. Roman, what am I talking about Romans for? I will talk about Romans here in a minute, but uh, apparently I'm eager. <laughs> nah, forget it, just jump to Romans. No, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. Teaching about love, your enemy, love for enemies. Jesus said, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For He gives His sunlight to both the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Oh, man. Verse 43, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, among the people gathered around Jesus on the hillside that day, it was a well-known ethic that you should love your neighbors. Uh, there is nothing new here in Jesus' teaching. Remember, see how he starts that? You have heard the law that says. 
It's like I don't even have to explain it beyond this. You know this. You have heard the law that says... Um, they were thinking back to Leviticus 19.18 that says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because I am the Lord. If we identify with God, if we bear His image and we're stepping into that God-given privilege and role, we understand that we do not hate, we love, because God is our Lord. Now, the ethic of loving your neighbor as yourself was not new. In fact, it's very old, thousands and thousands of years old. All the way back to Moses and the giving of the law, Israel had been coached, uh, indeed commanded, to extend love to those around them. To those around them, both uh, your people and your neighbor. Who were your people? For the Israelites hearing this, it was Israel. It was the fellow tribes of Israel. But who were their neighbors? Who were the, the, those that were not them? It was the surrounding tribes, the surrounding nations, and the surrounding ethnicities. So Jesus is starting off on familiar ground, in familiar territory. But just like everything else Jesus is teaching during the Sermon on the Mount, here in so many other ways, like with divorce, like with murder, and like with the taking of oaths, Jesus takes that ethic that they knew and propels it in a whole new direction. A whole new direction, taking it to a whole uh, another level, a whole other level, to a fuller, deeper, broader understanding than what they understood just in the law. So look at verse 44 and 45. But I say, love your enemies, exclamation point. In the New Living Translation, it's an exclamation point. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting like what? As true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. Now, Jesus knows us pretty well. He knows you and me really pretty well. He knew the people around him on that hillside really well. He knew that they would experience um, persecution. They would experience rejection, oppression. They would know what it's like to have enemies in their life. And especially as a believer, choosing to follow Jesus, you would inevitably run into opposition, persecution. You would have people who hate you. Jesus also knew how deeply, uh, how deeply we feel things. The human heart, our, our human personality, our human ability, we can really feel stuff deeply, be moved by emotion. We can react strongly to things in our lives. Jesus knows how our hearts and how our minds can be quickly hijacked by emotions. So Jesus lifts our attention away from our own hearts and our own propensities and places our focus upon God, upon God and His example. Jesus says, don't just love your neighbors and fellow believers, but also love your enemies. Love your enemies. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Can we do that on our own? Probably not. Probably not. If it's up to you, I'm not sure you're going to be able to consistently and uh, thoughtfully love your, neighbor, love your enemies. This is why Jesus gets our attention and then he directs it, directs our attention and our intentions toward honoring God. Basing your, his command to love your enemies in the idea of worship. As an act of worship to the God who made you, whose image you bear, you love your enemies. 
So think about those who hate and perse persecute you. And then ask God to cause your heart to swell in love for them. Make this an issue of prayer. God, I really don't like this person. In fact, I might be teetering on the edge of hating this person. God, you have to help me. Change my heart here. I want to honor you and how I regard this person, how I treat this person, what I feel toward this person. Help my heart swell in love toward this person today and then tomorrow do the same thing. Help me do this day after day after day. Change who I am inside. Invite the Holy Spirit to spark an authentic desire for their well-being and their good. To love your enemies doesn't mean you have to go and give them slobbery kisses on the neck, that kind of weird stuff. You have to want their best. You want the best for them. You desire their well-being and their good. You want them to know joy. You want them to know healing. You want them to not be a person that's so easy to hate, <laughs> probably. But, you know, you want God's blessing in their life. Whatever needs to happen to make that so, we pray that for them. And now, in ourselves, as I mentioned, it might be impossible. But doing so as an act of worship, what does that do? I believe it helps us tap into something bigger than ourselves. It helps tap into something stronger than ourselves. It helps us tap into God and His strength and His ambition. This is what God desires for us, but this is what God demonstrated for us and makes possible in us through His provision. In fixing our obedience on God, we gain access to all that is possible in and through Him through the power of His indwelling Holy Spirit. So that's pretty encouraging, right? So I've got to say basically two things today. Love your enemies and be perfect. But then I also get to say, but it's not up to you. Trust in the Lord. Surrender into His mighty, merciful hands. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm juggling. Let's look at verse 46 and 47. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. Man, Jesus just won't let us off the hook here. You kind of think he'd just touch on it and move on. No, he's still circling back like, no, 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 get this. If you just love those who like you, if you just love those who think like you, act like you, look like you, and are nice to you, big deal. Big deal. Everyone does that. That's easy. That's easy. Everyone. He, po he points out the tax collectors, and everyone's like, ugh, tax collectors? You know, everyone, that was like the, the trope, right? If you wanted to point out the bad people or the, 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 the rejected people in a society, it was the tax man. Even the tax man loves his, his friends. Everyone's like, sheesh. Tax people love their friends. It's just like big deal if you love them. Just being a normal human being enables you to love the people you like and who treat you kindly. We're naturally inclined to do that. We, we, we appreciate it. We actually, it's easy to love the lovable people in our lives. This is what Jesus is pointing out. But what must set Christ followers apart is their commitment to loving everybody, to loving everyone that's in their lives, and a, a, a persistent refusal to allow hatred toward anyone including enemies, including aggressors, including those who would wish harm upon you. In committing to this radical kind of love and this radical rejection of hatred, we pursue then perfection, the kind of perfection that permeates God's presence. 
Okay, because this is where Jesus is heading. He's like, hey, I want to call you to perfection. Strive for perfection in this. Look at verse 48. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Oh, man, what kind of a verse is that? Here we find a verse that has perplexed many faithful followers of Jesus for, many years, for a long time. How do I do that? Is Jesus really raising up the expectations that I've got to be perfect like God is perfect? Oh, man. Hope you have some time. It's going to take a few minutes, right? How are we, who are demonstrably imperfect, to actually be perfect like God? Is Jesus telling us to actually be perfect? If so, good luck, us. I mean, really, are we going to do that? Can we have you? Even for one day, have you ever been like at the end of the day, like folding your hands on your chest as you lay down to sleep and like, did it. I grabbed that gold ring of perfection today. Check me out, God. And he's like, nice work. We can't do it. Jesus knows us. And Jesus, knowing us, he knows that we are fickle. He knows we are distractible. He knows we are inconsistent. We are. All of us are. I think we would all look at ourselves in there and say, I am fickle, I am uh, easily distracted, and I am inconsistent. Yet it is to people just like us that Jesus here on the hillside in Matthew says, but you are to be perfect even as your Father is perfect in heaven. <laughs> so what is going on here? And how do we go about doing that? Well, in this, like so many other things in the life of faith, let's start by looking at Jesus. Let's look to Jesus. What is Jesus like and what is his attitude toward us? Oh, baby, I want a T-boat. Turn to Romans chapter 5. There it is. There's my Romans cross-reference. What was Jesus' attitude toward us? Get a load of this. Paul says, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us. Who? Sinners. Offenders against His righteousness. Offenders, violators of His will in our life. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a per person who is especially good. But God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, He will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of His Son... While we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. This is the attitude of Jesus. This is God's heart expressed in Christ to us. Jesus loves us. Jesus cares for us so we can trust him. We can trust Him. We can trust Him to do what? Well, we can trust Him to not set us up for failure. We can trust that Jesus isn't leading us to a cliff's edge and be like, ha-ha, so long, sucker. No, we can trust Him. We can rely upon Him, trusting that He isn't setting us up for frustration and failure. Jesus doesn't want you to struggle and be defeated all the time. Can you believe that? Can you believe that Jesus doesn't get a thrill by seeing you fail? He doesn't. He loves you. He cares for you. 
Jesus isn't playing games with us. Jesus isn't teasing us. He isn't setting these unattainable goals before us and then standing back with his arms crossed laughing at us like, <laughs> look at them fail, look at them drop like flies, <laughs> idiots. There's none of that with Jesus. There's none of that. If he says we are to be perfect, then what does he mean? What does he mean when he says, be perfect like your father is perfect? What does he intend for us? What does it look like for us to set our hearts on obedience, to actually strive toward fulfilling this command? Well, like we said, let's be clear. We are not perfect. We never have been perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. Uh, but the good news is, we aren't required to figure out how to achieve perfection on our own. Whew, right? It's not up to us to get it dialed in and figure it out on our own, through our own efforts and our own abilities. The InterVarsity Press New Testament Commentary explains it this way, that God becomes the standard of comparison suggests that Jesus' instruction here is exhortation, exhorting us, setting a goal before us, not assuming a state to which the hearers have already come. Okay, Jesus isn't looking around like, hey, just like you're perfect right now, stay there. Don't mess up. No, he's setting an exhortation, setting a goal before us. We've, the issue of whether any Christian is perfect is irrelevant here. All of us can learn to better reflect God's character. At the same time, God promises us power to overcome any given temptation. And if we can overcome any temptation, we should choose to say no to every temptation. And as long as God represents the moral standard, none of us has room to boast. If God is the standard, none of us can take a victory lap. None of us can boast about our perfection. All of us must unite as brothers and sisters in need and seek God's kingdom and righteousness with all our hearts. Jesus sets before us an exhortation, sets a goal to which we together set our hearts and say, we will strive toward this goal. We'll strive to honor God and reflect His image most rightly through our striving toward Christ-likeness. So here's what we know. If we follow Jesus, then we obey His commands. There's a strong, undeniable connection. If we say we follow after Jesus, then we follow His commands. We obey His commands. The Sermon on the Mount is a sublime distillation of Jesus' commands for us. The way we ought to live is here and concentrate in the Sermon on the Mount. Repeatedly, Jesus stands upon the law given to Moses and elevates it. I mean, sends it right up through the stratosphere. He's like, whoa, you've heard it said, but I say this. <laughs> it's like super high. It's like, wow, Jesus, that's amazing. He elevates it. He places it far beyond our reach, requiring us to live in this tension. Rightly so, this tension of striving for it, yet also surrendering to God in our efforts to obey it. Okay, have you found this tension in the Christian life? We discipline ourselves, we strive, we press toward the mark of our high calling in Christ, and at the same time we know that we're just flawed and <laughs> incapable of doing anything on our own to earn God's favor. So we strive and we surrender. We strive and we surrender. 
We live in this balance of striving and surrendering. The very act of seeking to be a Christ follower, it calls us beyond ourselves, away from a prideful confidence in our own abilities to earn God's favor. Man, it's a trap we fall into all the time. We think that if we just stop doing the dumb stuff and do all the right stuff, God will give us His favor, that we'll earn something with God. It's telling us something that Jesus sets such a high standard for us, isn't it? It's telling. Why would Jesus set such a high standard for us? Jesus literally, on purpose, saturates the Christian experience with the nonstop necessity of faith. Everything he is about and calling us into pivots on faith. Faith in every aspect. The nonstop necessity of faith filled with constant reminders to trust in God. He leads us on purpose to places where we realize, wow, I need God to help me with this. I need the Holy Spirit to enliven something in me, give me an awareness, give me strength in this, because I, I don't think I can do this on my own. Wow, I realize in this moment how very much I need Jesus. He leads us over and over to this nonstop necessity of faith, filling our days with constant reminders of our need to trust in God. Jesus is leading us to both strive and surrender in the life with God. Okay, so keep these two words in mind, striving and surrendering. Striving and surrendering. If we try to get it right on our own, we will get frustrated, guaranteed. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been really intent on getting it right on your own and then ended up frustrated? Man, show of hands. I think all of us would raise our hand there. We've all done that. That's in our religious brain. We think that that's how it works. I'm going to just do harder, work harder, do better, and then I will get there. And we end up frustrated, jaded, guaranteed. But here's the thing. If we rely on Jesus and we look to Him and ask Him to grow us, to shape us, to refine us, we will find that God is faithful to complete the good work that He has begun in you. He's a finisher. He will finish the good work that He has begun in you. So, what does Jesus tell us then? Love your neighbor. That's the easy part. Keep doing it. Love your neighbor. That's the easy part. But also, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. That, my friends, is the impossible part that we will spend the rest of our days attempting, striving toward. Jesus sets this standard that we are to orient our lives in the pursuit of, that I will love my neighbors and I will love my enemies as well, just like Jesus did and just like He comes and commands us to do as well. And in doing so, there's a promise. Verse 45 says in Matthew 5, Verse 45, in that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. When you do this, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. And that's a promise we can rely upon. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for the challenge. Ugh, you said some hard stuff in this. Lord, I'm glad, though. I'm glad you say hard stuff that gets our attention, that stops us in our tracks and helps recalibrate us because we can be so far off in the weeds. Yeah, we can get so taken in by strong feelings of hatred and of uh, animosity toward others. Uh, and then we can react so strongly against that that we end up in this like self-confident uh, self-righteousness that's equally as dangerous. God, you call us into this place of both striving and surrendering, and I pray that we would uh, hold that tension well as we pursue Christ-likeness. Lord, it's been a rough couple of years, a lot of years actually. This hasn't been a particularly easy year either. 
And there's a lot of vitriol, a lot of uh, just toxicity out there right now. And I, and, I, and I confess that the church, those who claim the name of Jesus Christ, have not been doing a very good job of standing apart and saying, regardless of what happens, we will love. We will love. We will love those who have a differing opinion, those who have a differing lifestyle, those who have a different per political persuasion. The church has not done a very good job. Oftentimes, we've been the one throwing stones. We've been the ones hurling expletives. We've been the ones burning things down. We've been doing just terrible things. And people know we're Jesus' people, or at least we claim to be. God, help us, help us start here. Help us start in me, that we would do a better job of pledging allegiance to you, living out your law of love in all these aspects of our life. That as we think about the people that we don't like, the people that are different than us, that we uh, find easy to hate, I pray that daily we would lay ourselves before you. Ask your Holy Spirit to help our hearts beat with love toward these people that are hard to love. That day by day you would soften our hearts, you would enlarge our spirits so that we might actually love and in doing so become children, true children of God our Father. Lord, there's work to do. The church needs to set a better example in this as we strive and as we surrender. There's so much hate in our world, and there's such a famine of love, and I pray that we would start being purveyors of love as we go out into the world, that we would surprise people with the love of Christ, even in, especially in situations where people would expect us as Christ followers to be angry and to spew hate, but instead we spew love. We share love. We, 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 we show affection. We desire goodness and well-being in their life for God's sake. Lord, help us plant our feet in a desire for obedience. Let us place our hearts firmly in your hands of love and kindness. May we rest in your mercy expressed to us in Jesus. Make us people of faith, trusting that Jesus told us the truth, that we can do what he set us out to do, and in that you can be glorified. We make this prayer today in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to share communion together. This is the first Sunday of the month. But I love how this sharing of communion really becomes a moment where we can visualize that striving and that surrendering. As we remember, as we come, we take the juice, we take the, the bread, we're remembering something. How we are, yes, called to discipline ourselves and to strive to be more like Jesus. But at the same time, we surrender and saying, Jesus, you paid it all. You did everything I couldn't do for myself. Nothing about who I am is of my own doing. Everything I am is because of you and your grace, the kindness you've shown me. And so as you come to partake today in, the, in communion, the Lord's Supper, I pray that we'd come as a remembering people. Remembering what Jesus has done for us, that attitude with which he came to us while we were still God's enemies, while we were still sinners, and he died for us. So it might be brought to life, saved, and able to love. It's appropriate as you prepare for uh, sharing of communion, this great act of remembering, uh, to take a few moments of introspection, sit in the Lord's presence, open your life to him and say, God, search me and know me. Lead me in the way everlasting. If there's any wickedness in me, any wicked way, hard-heartedness, God, bring that to my attention that I might surrender it to you. Take a few moments of introspection and preparation, and then when you're ready, I'll ask that you come down the center aisle and be served 
Hold on to it as you return to your seat down the side aisles. Once everyone's served, we'll partake together. Now, who's this for? It's for all those who can remember what Jesus has done for you. Which means, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you said, Jesus, you're Lord, and I will follow you day by day. I will strive, and I will surrender more and more. If you've said that, this is for you. You don't have to have ever been at Hope and Anchor before. This might not even be your home church. You might have a home church back home. That's fine. This is for Jesus' people. People that have followed after Christ and said, You are my Lord, and I remember what you've done for me. So when you're ready, come and be served.